lost my place. Um, my wife is due on July 10th. We're having a boy, and she. we're trying to think of a name. We have three kids. We've kind of burned all the good names. We're trying to come up with <laughs> a good name, and we do it different. She starts with the nickname and then works to the real name. So if she wants to call the kid whatever she wants, Tal, then she works back to, well, what's a real name that ties into that? I'm the opposite. I think the birth certificate trumps all. So I start with the real name and figure the nickname will emerge naturally from the real. So we, we have not seen eye to eye on this. Kind of the way it works is she brings names and I shoot them down. That's generally, I have not contributed anything positively to the conversation. I will say that. So we're, we're doing that. So I've been thinking about naming, and naming is important, whether or not naming anything is important. People take a, it's a big deal to name your pets. And usually we, we try to put something behind it. We think of, you know, is there a family member? Like Brandon was saying, you know, we get Spencer from here and Webb from here. Sometimes we look at family members or other people who are significant in our life and say we want to name them after that. Sometimes we name a kid based on what we hope for them. That's kind of a biblical thing. We look at biblical characters and, well, he was like this. So we want our kid to be like that. Or you at least pick a name that you think is cute or cool or something. The, the very least, I hope, you pick a name that's not going to set your kid up for years of playground torture. They're, they're stuck with it. You've seen all those lists that float around on um, emails, you know, crazy baby names and all that. The, the risk of saying any of those from up here, I don't know all of you. And uh, I, don't know who you, I don't know who your parents are. I don't know what, your, what name you've got in your head for your kids. So I'm not going to say any of those names for risk of somebody getting up and walking out. I did see a few things that were interesting. If someone wants to change their name as an adult, I don't have any problem. You can pick whatever you want because you know the consequences. There was a kid in England. He was 19. He changed his name to this. Captain Fantastic, faster than Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine, Hulk, and The Flash combined. He goes by Captain Fantastic, but that whole thing is his name. There was a girl in Asheville, North Carolina, and who was in a science class where they're going to have to dissect something. You all did that in science. You dissect something. And I think she worked for, or she volunteered with PETA or something like that. So she changed her name to... Um, CutOutDissection.com. That became her name. A woman in Virginia changed her name to GoVeg.com. She was a vegan and was promoting that type of thing. There was a woman in Tennessee uh, who had five children, and she wanted to send one of her daughters to the same golf school that Tiger Woods went to. Cost a lot of money, so she auctioned off the right to change her name. And the winning bid was $15,000. I don't know if that paid for the school or not, but her name is now GoldenPalace.com tough. Um, but when you're naming your kid, you got to be a little more sensitive. As an adult, whatever, you know what you're doing. If you want to face the consequences, you're not on the playground anymore, whatever. But kids, this one I thought was a Vietnamese man. Uh, in Vietnam, apparently, there's a two-child-only two policy. So for his third kid, in order to kind of flaunt this policy, he named his kid Find 6500 That was the fine for if you had a third kid. So that kid had that stigma, finally got his name changed in his 20s. In New Zealand, a family named their child number 16 bus shelter. I don't know if that has significance for them or not. Family tried to name their twin kids fish and chips. That was rejected. This one's sad. Also in New Zealand, there's a court case. A nine-year-old girl uh, 
she couldn't have done it herself, but someone sued on her behalf. Her parents were actually charged with some form of cruelty to children because they named her Tallulah Does the Hula from Hawaii. That was her first name. And she, the, the judge, I read the court case, was fired up at the parents, took the kid away from the parents until they could come up with a new name for her. So that's bad. There's a book called Bad Baby Names by a guy named Michael Sherrod and Matthew Rayback. They went through the U.S. Census for about 85 years. They came up with some interesting names. These are all official. Last name page, first name title, uh, someone who named their kid, first name Hell. Every number from 1 to 20, so you've got someone whose name is 17. Uh, from 10s to 100, so somebody's name is 60 or 80. Someone named 1,000, someone named a million, billion, and infinity. Last name Tuna, first name Fish. I thought this was interesting as a pastor. 149 people named Lust, 70 named Greed, 12 named Sloth, 24 named Wrath, 17 named Envy, and 830 named Pride. Nobody named Gluttony, but they got the other six right there. I'm not sure what that says about us. There's a Chinese man who tried to name his baby the at symbol, you know, G your name at Gmail, they tried to name them that. didn't work because you couldn't translate it into Mandarin. And then this is probably the ultimate for where we live. A, a guy named his kid version 2.0. So you can pick. Those are, I'll just throw those out there to you for your consumption. Maybe one day you'll be dedicating your version 2.0 or 2.3 or however many kids you choose to have. And the Bible names are important. Also, uh, the, not every name. But many of them, if you know the name of someone, you know something about their character or their nature, or you know something about their future destiny. Jacob means um, crafty one, and Jacob was known as a deceiver throughout most of his life. You can go back and read in Genesis. He was pretty underhanded. He did what he felt like he needed to do. He manipulated to get his way. His name was crafty one, and he, that's what he did. God eventually changed his name to Israel, but as Jacob, he was crafty, manipulative. Uh, what Abram's name originally was Abram. When God promised to make him a father of many nations, he changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many. That says something about his destiny. So throughout the Bible, you can see kind of this thread that runs through that names are important. If you know someone's name, you know something either about who they are or about what they're going to do. Somebody said Jesus had over 100 names. I didn't count. But that's what somebody said, and it was copyrighted. So we'll say it's true. Jesus has over 100 names, and I want to look at one of them this morning. It's Emmanuel. This is Matthew 1.23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Christmas. You know that. You talk about that every December, that God has come to be with us. That's what Emmanuel means. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that this morning and see if there's anything there for us. I thought it was interesting because... Kind of the job description of God is he's everywhere all the time. That's what it means to be omnipresent. If you go and read through the Old Testament, all kinds of stories of God showing up, talking to specific people, doing things in particular places. He's, he's all through the Old Testament. So why is there such a big deal about Jesus having the name Emmanuel, God with us? Because it seems like God was always with us, right? He's everywhere. So as long as there have been people, he's been there with us. Psalm 136. 39, 7 through 10 says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So the picture there is you're everywhere and I can't get away from you. Even if I wanted to get away from you, I can't get away from you because there's nowhere I can go that you are not. You're everywhere. So what's the big deal about the angel making sure that Mary and Joseph know this particular kid, Jesus, needs to be called Emmanuel because God is with us? I was thinking about that. This is 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 1. Remember last week we talked about the first three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, they all had this united kingdom, and Solomon built a temple for God. God told him to build a temple in Jerusalem, and he did. And this is the end of kind of that building process. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. So the, the Ark is in Jerusalem. That's just a, Zion's another name for that. Solomon's going to get it and bring it to the temple. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at that time of the festival in the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were, were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Those are kind of like angels. The cherubim spread their wing over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they're still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. So you get the picture there. Solomon builds this temple, physical, you know, it's rocks, all that. It's got a couple of rooms in it. The, the, the innermost room is called the most holy place, it's, and that's where they put the ark. So these priests take this ark into this room, and then they pull out, because no one's allowed to go in that room except the high priest. I think he can only go in once a year. So everybody pulls out of this room, and then this cloud comes and fills the temple. And you can read that also in Second Chronicles, and it says the people fell over and they couldn't do anything because that cloud, which represents God's presence or his glory, filled this temple. So that's the picture. Remember last week when we talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit, we talked about Pentecost and how important all that was. And so when we become a Christian, we get new plumbing, and the plumbing connects us to heaven, and heaven's not outer space. It's just another dimension where God lives. And we can't connect with that. And when we become a Christian, we get the pipes that we can connect. And through those pipes, the, the deal is we want the Holy Spirit to flow through those pipes. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And he says, constantly, continually be filled with the Spirit. And we said, you know, if he's water, a lot of us, we just get a trickle. And we just need to open up the faucet, and that's easy. That's just asking him to fill us. What we're talking about today is the same reality, different picture. That was kind of water, pipes, all that stuff. What Today it's a building, and this building is literally filled up with this cloud. You can imagine that in this room, that it could be filled with a cloud or a fog or something like that that we could all see and feel and all that jazz. 
So that's kind of the picture. In um, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? In that verse, Paul's talking about us corporately as the body of Christ. He's saying we are the temple of God. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says we're all living stones being built together into a spiritual house. So the picture there is that when we get together as Christians, you're a block and I'm a block and he's a block and she's a block and God is building us together to make a house for him to live in. He's trying to build a house where he wants to live. We don't have time to talk about all of the implications of that, but that says something about what needs to happen when we get together and that you and I each have a role. Whether you ever get a microphone, whether you ever stand on a stage, if you're a Christian, when you come together with other Christians, the expectation is you're a living stone, you're a block, and you've got, he's putting you in a wall. And eventually he wants to build a house where he is comfortable dwelling we don't have time to talk about that today. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? This is individual. So we've got this corporate reality. We are the temple of God. And you could say, well, there's plenty of people in here. I don't have to do anything. You individually are also the temple of God. That's what that verse teaches. Individually, you, and you can just take your chest and pretend it's a house right in here. Temple of God, right and so what we read in 1 Kings 8 should be true of you. You're a temple. We have this picture of the cloud filling the temple. So look, in here, is it full of the presence of God? It can be, should be, because you individually, that's who you are. This idea of God being with us. Jesus was obviously with his disciples in a way God wasn't with people in the Old Testament. Jesus hung out with them. They ate together. They traveled together. He was phys- they could hold his hand. They were physically with him. In the Old Testament, God kind of shows up on the scene, and there's a lot of light, and a lot of people fall down and are scared and are shaking, and he says something or does something, and then he pulls back, and everybody goes, wow. Not necessarily in the New Testament. There's, a lot of, there's some of that, but there's a lot of just life of Jesus just being with people. And so the question for us is, well, which one do we get? Because Jesus obviously isn't here that way now. And we said, even if he was, he's just one guy. So if he's at my house, he can't be at your house. He can only be in one place at one time. So in what sense is God with us? Are we back to the Old Testament where we kind of get the zap every now and again when something really spiritual or really holy happens, or when we're around people who are really spiritual or really holy and that kind of rubs off on us. We don't get the Jesus thing anymore because he's not, I don't see him, do you? He's not around like that, and even if he was, well, maybe he's over in Cambodia or something. He's not here. What we get is the Holy Spirit. That's who we get. That's the reason Jesus went to heaven. He said, it's better for me to be in heaven. We talked about this last week, so I'll send my spirit because he can be fully available to all of us all the time. He can be at my house and at your house at the same time and in Cambodia all at the same time because he doesn't have a body. He's spirit, so he can be everywhere. So we get the Jesus reality without the body, which is hard for us. That can be hard for us to grasp. But that's what you get. That's the whole reason that God, the angel said, call him God with us. 
because God was going to be with us in a new way, and it wasn't just for 33 years while Jesus, that didn't do us anything. That didn't do us any good at all. God is with us in a new way, and he's with us by his spirit. So you can look in your box and see what's happening in there. Is it full or is it not? Simple question. If it's not, to make it full, you just ask. It's not rocket science. You just ask, and then it'll be full again, and you can go and do what the Lord has called you to. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that God is with us? A couple of things. One, I think there's a restraining element to God's presence. I'm not talking about being a spokesperson for God or an ambassador for God or a messenger. You're all of those things. I'm being, you're a carrier of God. Everywhere you go, he goes. He's with us. And so maybe I don't need to eat lunch at Hooters tomorrow if God is with me. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But there's kind of this restraining element to him being with us. And maybe it keeps us out of some trouble. If you actually thought, think of five places you're going to be this week. Every one of those places, he's going to be too. Not because he's already there, but because you're bringing him to that situation. That's what it means for him to be with you. Remember, you're the temple. You're the deal. He's on the inside, and where you go, he goes. And so maybe that idea can bring some wisdom to where you go and where you don't go and what you do and what you don't do. And you ask the question, is this some place that I would want God to be? Is this some place where I think he's going to enjoy hanging out? Maybe, maybe not. That to me is like level one of what we're talking about. I think that's good. It can, again, provide some wisdom. It can keep you out of some trouble. But if that's where we stay, it's not, we've missed it. If you think, if you go back and look at where Jesus went, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he went to places that kind of like Hooters. He went to places that were tough, that were questionable. He hung out with prostitutes, and he hung out with lepers, and he hung out with people who were unclean, and he hung out with self-righteous Pharisees, and he was with a lot of different kinds of people, kind of gray areas. That's where he went. And I think this is the thing for a lot of us to get. Yes, there's a kind of a restraining element to God being with us, but there's also a sanctifying. That's just a fancy word for making holy. Don't think holy is suit and a tie and a Bible and singing hymns. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the values of the kingdom, love, joy, righteousness, justice, peace, forgiveness. All of those things are values of the kingdom, and the Holy Spirit brings those into every situation that he goes in. Again, go back and look at what Jesus did, where he was an atmosphere changer. He always was messing with the thermostat. And if you're a Christian, he's, li- he's going with you, which means you can mess with the thermostat also. Every place you go, there's an atmosphere. I don't pick up on that kind of stuff at all. I'm dull, dull, dull. Some of you do. And you can tell this place is heavy or this place is, you know, it's joyous or whatever. You can do that. You're tuned into all that stuff. And when you go someplace, that's what you feel. You can feel the atmosphere. Every place has one. Every situation, there's dynamics going on that we can't see that kind of affect the mood of a place. You you get all that. God with you means you can change that. You can play with the thermostat. That's what Jesus did everywhere he went. He was always doing that. There's some places where he turned the heat down a little bit, and there are other places where he turned it up, depending on 
what was going on. And you have that ability, for lack of a better word. Romans 8.11 says, The spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Death's the biggest enemy. That's the big dog nobody can beat. And the one that beat him lives in you. So we don't have anything to be afraid of. Every situation you go in, you can win. There's no one stronger than the one who lives within you. Period. None. No one is stronger than the one who comes with you. This is, you're the little kid who goes to school with your older brother who can beat up every kid in your class. That is who you're bringing with you everywhere that you go. Every situation that you're in, you've got the trump card. You've got the spirit that beat death living within you. So there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no situation that you can't impact, that you can't influence because of God. You can't do it on your own, but God is with you, so you're not on your own. How do you do that? I think easy. Two things. One is you can't be embarrassed by the company that you keep. That's where a lot of us get hung up. God is with us. We'd rather him not be. Certain places, it's okay in here for God to be with us. It's okay with certain groups of friends, certain situations for God to be with us. Others, not quite so appropriate. There are situations we have, groups of friends that we have, things that we do where we just as soon God not be with us. We're embarrassed. You've done that before. You've brought somebody somewhere and you spend the whole time wondering what are they going to say, what are they going to do, let's just get through this, let's just get out of here. Maybe you brought them here and you're worried about that. It happens. And sometimes we do the same thing with God. Just stay in the car. Let me just run in and do this, okay? That's the first step. You can't be embarrassed by the one who's with you. And then the second is hard, simple but hard. You've got to be willing to speak when you're prompted. That's it. Don't be embarrassed and be willing to open your mouth when you're prompted to open your mouth. Sometimes we do this thing and we say, you know what? Just my presence will make a difference. Yes, it will. You are an awesome person and your presence will make a difference. We're all better for your presence. Sometimes you got to say something. Very rarely, I will say never, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you see just Jesus' presence. If you have a Bible that has his words in red, there's lots of places where there are words in red because he talked a lot. That can be hard. That's part of not being embarrassed. You don't have to go in at your staff meeting tomorrow and say you've got something to say. You don't have to do That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is recognizing that the guy who changes the thermostat lives in you. And he's not afraid of wherever you are. He's not intimidated and he's not scared. And if you will commit to yourself to not be embarrassed, then at some point he'll probably prompt you to say something. And if you will, that's it. That's it. That's all you have to do. There's a parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13 about yeast. And he says, a little bitty, the kingdom of God is like yeast, a little bit of yeast that works through a whole batch of dough. Sometimes it takes some time and it doesn't take much, but eventually the yeast wins. It influences the whole thing. Same thing for us. 
it takes time, but eventually we win because we're on his team, and he wins. He influences everything. He is not influenced. So we can stand on that, in that. So that's just simple, right? Don't be embarrassed, and when you're prompted to speak, just speak. Two groups of people, I think. They're strivers and they're slackers, and you might find yourself in one of these categories. Strivers are always concerned that God's going to leave them, and so they're working really hard to keep him close. They look great on the outside, a little sweat right here from working so hard, but always doing it, always on their game, always working really hard. There is a place in the Bible where God does leave the temple. You can read it in Ezekiel 10. We read where God comes to the temple after hundreds of years of people rejecting him, disobeying him, just in general dishonoring him, he leaves. He comes back at the end of the book in 43, but he does leave. And so absolutely it can happen. You can't take for granted that God's always going to be with you. If you don't want him, he's going to leave. He wants to be welcomed in a place. And if you're constantly dishonoring him, disobeying him, disrespecting him, yeah, at some point he's going to pull out. Which he doesn't slip out under the cover of night. You're going to know. His desire is to be with us. And so you don't have to worry about it. If you're a striver, if you're someone who's constantly working to keep him close or to stay in his good graces, just relax. He wants to be with us. His name is God with us. That's his identity. It's who he is. It's what he does. You don't have to convince him to be with you. You just have to open the door. That's it. And you've already got the grand prize. There's nothing better. Like that, that's it. Him being with you, that's, that's as good as it gets. We said last week, everything God does in our life and in the world, he does by his Holy Spirit who's living in you. It doesn't get any, you've already won. If he is with you, you've already won. You don't have to work anymore. So just relax. He wants to be with you. You don't have to put out the best china and you don't have to make sure the room is clean and the yard's mowed. You don't have to do all that. Just open the door and you're good. There's some of you who are slackers, and honestly, it's you don't care that he's with you. It's not, it's not happening. It doesn't matter. And what you need to do is recognize what's going on in your heart, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, and you don't care, that God is with you, and you don't care. That's not good over time, and it, you're missing opportunities. It might not be that you're willfully saying, stay in the car, just neglect. You don't recognize that everywhere you go, he goes, and he might actually want to do something in those places too. He might actually have an opinion on what's happening in your office. He might actually have an opinion on the interactions among your friends, what's going on with your kids, what's going on with your parents. He might actually care and have something to say about that. He's with you anyway, but you're you're slacker. You don't recognize that. And so you just go through life on your own, not recognizing who's coming with you. It's kind of like the kid, you know, it's the Disney movie. The kid doesn't realize what's inside. It's Kung Fu Panda. You don't realize who's in you until you have to. You know, you're just walking around. Y'all haven't seen that movie. Okay. Just wondering. Huh? You did. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you. That's, that's what we're talking. That's the kind of feedback I need. So that's what's going on here. You got the guy who can, he can beat the tiger fella who got out of jail. He just doesn't realize what's in him. And then he looks, and the secret is, it's you. We run a tight ship in this place. So that's it. A lot of us are that way. We don't realize who's in us, and so we just walk around with our head down all the time. And nothing changes because we don't recognize we're the ones bringing the guy who can actually change things. We just stays this. We don't recognize the guy who can fix the thermostat is with us. And we just need to recognize that, stop being embarrassed, and be willing to say something when we're prompted to say something. Don't fly off at the mouth, but when it's time to say something, say it. And then see what happens. And over time, you'll see atmospheres begin to change and you'll realize he really is with you. Let's pray.